This episode of Stroke of Genius is brought to you by Ryan Mason and Lewis, LLP. Ryan Mason and Lewis specializes in intellectual property law with a particular focus on the procurement, licensing, and enforcement of patents in technology. Visit rml-law.com to learn more. The whole stereotype of an engineer as somebody that scrounged together components and made their own computer when they were young scares people away from the industry. And it also makes other people not take you seriously if that wasn't what you were doing when you were young. Welcome to Stroke of Genius, a show exploring inventions, the inventors behind them, and the role intellectual property plays in dreams becoming reality. I do have a lot of patents, certainly over a hundred. I'm your host, Andrea Madho. I'm a startup founder, a CEO, and co-inventor with Patent Pending Technology. Today, we're talking about the internet, the thing that supports so many of our everyday experiences communicating with our friends and family, navigating our surroundings, and learning new and exciting things. But before there was the internet as we know it, there was an impossible challenge assigned to a young computer programmer to create a magic box. My manager said, radio, we need to design a magic box that will sit between two ethernets and let somebody on one ethernet talk to somebody on the other ethernet. This is Dr. Radia Perlman. In 1985, Perlman was given a seemingly impossible assignment to fundamentally change the way computers spoke to each other. Her response to this challenge has made her a legend in the field, even earning her the title of the mother of the internet, a title she doesn't necessarily identify with strongly because Radia Perlman, mother of the internet, is not your average techie. I myself kind of hate technology. I really can't figure out how to use a cell phone. So how did someone who hates technology revolutionize the tech landscape? Let's start at the beginning. She grew up in Asbury Park, a seaside town on the Atlantic coast of New Jersey. Both of her parents were civilians working for the U.S. military, her father as an engineer on radar systems and her mother as a mathematician. It was definitely unusual to have a mother who was a mathematician. And she was the one that always helped me with my homework. So it was very funny at school where we were all struggling with our homework, including the uh, teacher. All the other kids would say, my father said we should do it this way. Someone else said, my father said we should do it this way. And I would say, my mother said we should do it this way. Even though I grew up with a professional mother, I also bought into the, um, I should eventually have a husband who would be taller than me and smarter than me, more successful than me. I had a fantasy at the time that some boy would do better than me at some math or science thing. And my plan was to fall in love with him and marry him. I wanted to be as good as possible. I didn't want to be less good in order to find someone like that, but I had to find some sort of prince who, who would be just a little bit better than me at all these things. It was just kind of how I grew up, kind of the culture at the time. Radia had a great role model in her mother. One might assume that this would be enough for her to ignore stereotypes, but cultural expectations are pervasive and complicated. But as Radia said, her dream man didn't limit her ambitions for her own greatness. 
and she held others to the same rigorous standards she set for herself. My classmates told me, you know, sort of years later, that they always hesitated as to whether or not they should be in my group because on the one hand, they would know that we would get an A. On the other hand, they'd know that we'd do 10 times as much work as necessary. So for instance, you know, a book report on some sort of book that we had to do, I decided to turn it into a musical puppet show where we made puppets and made costumes and I wrote the songs. Staging an elaborate puppet show in conjunction with a book report is not only A-plus student behavior. This artistry illustrates her delightful approach to abstract ideas. While her classmates may not have immediately seen the potential in Radia's tendencies to go above and beyond, one of her teachers did take notice. A high school teacher noticed there was a computer programming class at a nearby college, and the timing worked out that she could sign a few of us up and drive us over there. And teachers are just awesome that, you know, she did this all on her own initiative, all volunteer. And so we walk into the class and everybody in the class, from my perception, was talking about how they had built ham radios when they were seven. I had no idea what a ham radio was. I never did the stereotypical engineer things of taking things apart. It never occurred to me to take anything apart. I assumed I would break it or get electrocuted or something. In this class, it was so discouraging. I just sort of assumed I was years behind everybody else. And then they would ask questions with fancy words like input. I had no idea what that was. So I got nothing out of that class. And so this has sort of made me really realize that a large part of success is just merely believing that you can do it. And if you ever believe you can't, you won't be able to. Radia knew she was intelligent. But this class was enough to discourage her from pursuing computer programming any further. She returned to her roots and enrolled at MIT in the math department. She was entering one of the most prestigious higher ed institutions in the country, but her beliefs about what she could and couldn't accomplish followed her. I literally went to MIT without knowing how to change a light bulb. It was something that I would report to my father and a few days later it would be fixed, and I wasn't even curious what he did. I assumed it was dangerous or something. And here I was at MIT, and my light bulb burned out in my room, and I wandered around the dormitory asking people, are you majoring in electrical engineering? Until I finally found someone who said, yes, why? And I said, my light bulb burned out, what do I do? Over time, Radia became more comfortable at MIT, but when she first arrived, she was unavoidably outnumbered. When she enrolled at the school, there were about 50 women in a freshman class of more than 1,000, and all 50 of those women lived in the same dorm. And then when I was a sophomore, they said, oh, anyone of any gender can live anywhere. And so I thought, oh, that would be fun. I'll go to a co-ed dorm. But even though I was a math major, I didn't really kind of calculate how many women that would be if you suddenly sprinkled that few women among 40 or 50 dorms, however many they had. So I don't know what the other females were majoring in, but it wasn't math. So from that point on, when I was living in a dorm where I basically saw no other women and going to math classes where I basically saw no other women, I just basically hardly ever saw any women at all. And when I would occasionally see one, I would look and say, gee, that person looks out of out of place. <laughs> you know, somehow they're, they're smaller than everybody around. They, they, they just look kind of different. 
Radia was noticeably different than her male counterparts, but her demonstrable intellect was not overshadowed. I was taking a physics class, and the TA said to me, I need a programmer for a project. Would you like to be my programmer? And I said, well, I don't know how to program. And he said, yes, I know. That's why I'm asking you, because I have no money to pay you. And if you knew how to program, you'd expect to get paid. But you're obviously smart, because I was doing well in the class, and I'm sure you could learn. So I agreed to be his programmer, and to be honest, because I had a boyfriend at the time who knew how to program. So I figured there was a safety net there. And that was how I learned to program. Many people would be scared to take a job in an unfamiliar field. And had it not been for an outsider seeing her potential, that could have been true for Radia. She was not immune to self-doubt. I was kind of insecure, the whole imposter syndrome, especially when I went to grad school. The term imposter syndrome was first introduced in 1978 by psychology professors Dr. Pauline Rose Clance and Dr. Suzanne Imes after they noticed that many of their top female students displayed a curious mental habit. In the article, The Imposter Phenomenon in High-Achieving Women, Clance and Imes define imposter syndrome as an individual experience of self-perceived intellectual phoniness, where women especially feel that they don't deserve their success, despite outstanding academic and professional accomplishments. My perception was that everybody else was in graduate school because they were smart. I had just gotten into graduate school because I studied really hard. I couldn't imagine doing original research. Just some other species did that. And if any of the professors got to know me, they'd realize that was just an ordinary person and not this other kind of species. Today, she uses her platform to make sure that more people are positioned so that their abilities are discovered and valued. One of the things I'm passionate about these days is corporate culture. It can be a tough industry. The whole stereotype of an engineer as somebody that uh, scrounged together components and made their own computer when they were young, that is a very dangerous stereotype and it scares people away from the industry. And it also makes other people not take you seriously if that wasn't what you were doing when you were young. The ideal team has people who look at things from different angles and have different skills. So not everybody has to be good at communication. If you build a team and there's one person who can't string a sentence together, that's fine. Let, let that person concentrate on you know the art of it or uh, whatever, and let somebody else be the one doing the presentations. Uh, somebody that just loves being left alone and writing code, let that person do that. You know, we have to realize that there are many, many skills that are needed in this field. And uh, certainly, we don't want everyone to fit that stereotype because you would miss the kinds of skills that that person doesn't have. It wasn't until the end of graduate school that Radia found the skill that she'd eventually use as a jumping-off point for her career. And it was only because the friend that happened to approach me when I was struggling with trying to find an advisor, his group was doing network protocols. And that's the only reason I was doing that. Now, it could be that if I wound up in chemical engineering, whatever that is, I would have been just as thrilled. Network protocols are the rules that we give to computers when they interact in groups. By learning to write these protocols, she began to see the natural beauty present in the invisible mesh formed between computers. 
Computer networks appealed to her as a problem solver as well. She found major flaws in the existing way that things were being done, and she was quick to generate new, inventive solutions. How computers talk to each other has a lot of, you know, subtle problems. It's very important for networks to be much more reliable than your PC. People expect their PC to get weirdly stuck, and they know that they should just reboot it. You can't reboot the internet. So um, although the network that I designed was not the first, I studied the very first one and noticed that it could get broken in that way, where just a few corrupted messages and the network would never recover. So my first paper was saying, hey, <laughs> networks can't be that fragile. And here is how to design it so that it would, it would not be fragile. I, I called it self-stabilizing. This idea of a self-healing network stayed with her as she began her professional career, and she continued to question the design philosophy that enabled the status quo. Radia was working for Digital Equipment Corporation, or DEC. In 1975, the company sold a service called DECnet that could connect 32 computers housed under the same roof. It was like a mini localized internet that served a private group. Eventually, they grew their capabilities and were able to connect several hundred computers by 1980. But these linked computers were sort of marooned on their own island. A message couldn't take a bridge to another place and connect with other networks on other islands. When Radia joined the company in 1980, she immediately saw the limitations of the system. I was saying, no, no, you still need the layer that forwards from one link to another. And they said, oh, Radia, uh, you're just upset because no one needs your stuff anymore. And I said, but people may want to talk from one Ethernet to another. They said, oh, our customers would never want to do that. What Radia was envisioning was something more like the Internet as we know it today a series of wide-ranging, interconnected networks offering broad access to information between institutions and individuals. Her bosses were looking for a way to satisfy their clients' limited and immediate need, a way to communicate with their nearby colleagues and access their own proprietary information. So the company pushed ahead against her advice, and successfully so, too. They built their stuff. They were very successful uh, because it was good stuff. But it would have been just as successful had they done it correctly, meaning on top of a layer that was capable of forwarding packets between links. But it's hard to explain to management that these guys that were making lots of money for the company had done it wrong. Eventually, demand shifted in the direction Radia had predicted. And this brings us back to the preposterous assignment and the magic box. For clarification, her boss wasn't actually requesting a literal box. He was asking for a complicated communication solution, or in tech speak, a protocol. Years later, my manager said, Radio, we need to design a magic box that will sit between two Ethernets and let somebody on one Ethernet talk to somebody on the other Ethernet. Now, of course, that's what I'd been doing. My manager sort of challenged me to do this uh, late on a Friday, and he said, this is the kind of thing you do. Uh, the network should just plug itself together and um, figure out some subset of the topology that will reach everybody, but won't, will have exactly one way to get from every place to every other place. The constraint was that I had to figure out how to build a box that would work without changing how the end nodes 
were working. Uh, they would think they were just speaking on a single Ethernet, and the magic box had to be able to move things around. An N node is another way of describing a computer that's using the network. This new, non-existent technology that her boss was requesting needed to work seamlessly with exactly how the users and their computers were already behaving. Now, you could do that by just forwarding the Ethernet packets, but if there were any loops, then the packets would just go around forever. This point is key. Packets are small bits of information transmitted from network to network, computer to computer. Today, billions of packets travel all over the web, but in 1985, Ethernet could only support so many computers before the packets of information started to collide and interrupt one another, crashing entire networks. As Radia said, you could avoid these crashes by forwarding the packets, essentially sending them on a detour. But if that detour turned out to be a loop, the message would go in a circle forever. When that happened, it created a type of feedback. Just like when you hear a high-pitched squeal from a microphone that's too close to a speaker, that noise is produced because the microphone is amplifying its own sound in a perfect, endless circle. It's too much for the system to handle. Radia had already been working to counteract this issue by developing a kind of postal system for packets, a way to treat them like envelopes with return addresses and destinations. The piece of the network I was doing was how these little computers that forward packets figure out by themselves where everybody is located. So when they receive a piece of data that comes in an envelope that says where the destination is, they'll know which direction to forward it. But just to make the challenge a little more daunting, her boss had one more request. He thought he was being funny, and he said, to make it even more challenging, make the amount of memory necessary to run this algorithm not grow with the size of the network, which is crazy. There, nothing does that. He was going to be on vacation the next week, and this was before people read email or had cell phones or anything, so he was going to be completely unreachable that week. Well, that Friday, I realized, oh my goodness, I know just how to do it. And furthermore, it doesn't require extra memory if the network grows. I'd never seen anything like this, and I could prove that it worked, so I was very excited. Radia called her solution the Spanning Tree Protocol. It taught the network to learn to map itself. And she did it by using a mathematical formula that calculates the shortest distance between one place and every other place. In theory, the end result resembles a tree, because the shortest distance from a single leaf to a single underground root is always directly backwards and down the tree. She took inspiration from our natural world to allow small groups of private computers to evolve into the infinite public and open networks that we've come to love today. Solving this complicated challenge is impressive, but the timeline is staggering. Dr. Radia Perlman wrote her revolutionary spanning tree protocol in just two days. But there's more. Remember when she presented her book report as a musical puppet show? Well, what happened during the rest of this famous week is a lot like that. With extra time on her hands and feeling pleased with herself, she wrote a poem. But this was now Tuesday, and my manager was still not around, and I had to show off to him. You know, it was very frustrating to have to wait until Monday when he would arrive the next week. So I spent the remainder of the week working on the poem that goes along with the algorithm, and that became the abstract of the paper in which I published it. And her boss's reaction when he returned to Radia turning in a poem? He was blown away. 
So the poem is called Algorime, because every algorithm should have an algorime. And the poem is, I think that I shall never see a graph more lovely than a tree, a tree whose crucial property is loop-free connectivity, a tree which must be sure to span so packets can reach every LAN. First, the root must be selected. By ID, it is elected. Least cost paths from root are traced. In the tree, these paths are placed. A mesh is made by folks like me. Then bridges find a spanning tree. This poem appears in its entirety in the abstract of the official U.S. patent, entitled Method and Apparatus for Preventing Spanning Tree Loops During Traffic Overload Conditions. We're not sure if this is the only patent to ever include a poem penned by the inventor, but it's certainly a special rarity. We'll include a link in the description for this episode if you want to dive further into the details of the Spanning Tree Protocol and see the patented poem for yourself. Dr. Radia Perlman's contributions to the field of computer networking reach well beyond the Spanning Tree Protocol, but she's the first to admit it's an indelible part of her legacy. The Spanning Tree Protocol, I spent exactly one week on it, but it is such a cute story that it's what people kind of remember me for. It took time for the industry to catch up with Radia's vision for a service that provided seamless communication between interconnected networks. She's a fascinating figure because her approach is both radically innovative and boldly simple. She grasps the intricate details behind digital infrastructure, but her approach as a product designer is more in line with that freshman student at MIT who didn't know how to change a light bulb. When I design things, I design them for people like me that just want to do what they need to do and they shouldn't have to understand the guts of how it works. Radio frequently encourages designers to better understand human behavior, to know what humans are great at and when they shouldn't be relied on. It always bothers me when people in security say, we need more user training. And users shouldn't click on suspicious links. You know, what's a link? What's a suspicious link? When I design something, I like to design it for people who are just trying to get the job done and they're not enamored of trying to figure out what some engineer was, you know, tried to slap together. So I believe the equipment should just work by itself. If I do my job right, people never even notice it. And that doesn't actually bother me. I know what's going on in the background. And the idea that it's just incredibly simple and just works, I do find very satisfying. And one huge focus of Radio's career has been to look at how things might eventually fail and to even use parallels from other domains to predict it. I hadn't thought much about computer networks, but it's actually incredibly fascinating. How computers talk to each other has a lot of you know subtle problems. And I see it all the time with people. So for instance, when somebody says, don't worry, I will call you if there's a problem. I just know that's a very, very bad protocol because if they don't call me, did they lose my phone number? You know, was I not home when they called? Another example of a confusing and poorly designed protocol. Uh, Like the most egregious example of this, I was staying at a hotel once and they slipped something under the door, a piece of paper saying tomorrow at 2 p.m. they will be practicing the fire procedures. So at that point, ignore all sounds and activity by the staff. And that 
you know, <laughs> that seemed like a really bad idea in case there actually was a fire at that time. So um, this notion of having a bunch of independent things sort of operating reasonably on their own, but then communicating with each other and making this, you know, really reliable and looking out for all the weird cases that can come up is something that I just love doing. Radia's work has made a historic impact on the computer networking industry. For starters, she's listed as the inventor on more than 120 patents. I do have a lot of patents, um, you know, certainly over 100. Her work around the time of inventing the Spanning Tree Protocol and penning her poem, Algorime, eventually took the form of patents with slightly less elegant titles, such as Method of Multicast Message Distribution or Robust Data Broadcast Over Distributed Network with Malicious Failures. These patents were assigned to the company for which she worked at the time, Digital Equipment Corporation, who benefited as an industry leader for many decades thanks to programmers like Dr. Perlman. And in 2016, Dr. Radia Perlman was inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame. Alongside her photo, her name, and date of birth are some of her most notable patents. She's also a member of the National Academy of Engineers, the Internet Hall of Fame, and she received Lifetime Achievement Awards from numerous organizations. But remember, the talent that Radia brought into the world of computer networks was almost lost along the way. She was repeatedly discounted and discouraged because she didn't fit the engineering cliches. Luckily, there were figures along the way who recognized and supported her gifts. Radia hasn't taken that for granted. But how does someone so humble earn a grand title like Mother of the Internet? That particular thing came about because I was doing some sort of interview, and I don't tend to pay attention to them. I get sort of a little bit embarrassed by reading stuff about me. So, you know, the person doing it thought it would be a cute title because there were all these men fighting over saying, I am the father of the Internet. While she acknowledges that she did indeed make fundamental contributions to the underlying infrastructure of the Internet, the title Mother of the Internet doesn't resonate very strongly with Dr. Perlman. Radia contends that there are too many technologies at play to claim that it was invented by any single individual. So to close our conversation, we asked her how she would like to be remembered. Oh, wow, that's a difficult question. Um, uh, <laughs> I don't know how to answer that, unfortunately. Um, I, you know, I would like to be remembered as a, a good person that grew people around me, inspired people around me, and made technology that you can rely on. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Radia Perlman, a pianist, poet, engineer, inventor, and a maker of technology that you can rely on. You can learn more about Radia and see some of the patents featured on today's episode by clicking the link in the show notes. And special thanks to our episode sponsor, Ryan Mason & Lewis, LLP. I'm Andrea Madho, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of Stroke of Genius. This podcast is produced by Atwell Media on behalf of Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation. Please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you listen to your podcasts.